Again, if you are here for the first time, we want to tell you what a privilege it is to have you with us. Welcome. If you missed our announcements, uh, we are glad that you are here and you are stepping into a Sunday that we are basically continuing down this path of a, a long study of the book of Ephesians. And so you've missed a lot, but not enough to be out of place. We'll catch you all up to speed. But we've been in this book for 32 weeks. And it's been quite the journey, especially as we hit chapter 5, because chapter 5 has been, it's been a real doozy. Uh, it's taken us a while to get through it because Paul begins to really address some incredibly challenging and difficult yet very important things for the life of a believer. And he begins to address the practical side of how we begin to live. And he starts off with this call in chapter 5, be an imitator of God. Right, which is on face value, of course, is impossible. But when we begin to explore it and we understand that as believers, Christ dwells in us and he gives us the very nature of who he is, we begin to understand it. But as Paul works through chapter 5, he breaks it down to some very specific things that we are called to do when we imitate God. There are things in our life that we have to rid ourselves of, we have to war against, we have to push out of our life. Paul says they come in two categories, right? We've All these things we've explored in the past five weeks. Two categories, things that are going on in our hearts and things that come out of our mouths. And he turns them into two lists. And he says, here's the list of the things that go on in your heart that you have to fight and you have to war against. He goes, amongst you, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or impurity or greed, right? We explored those and what they look like, that sexual immorality is any sexual activity that takes out place outside the sanctity of marriage, which biblically defines between a man and a woman, in which way they become one flesh. We talked about impurity, right? The, the lie that the world wants to tell you that things like pornography and those kind of things that poison our soul and our mind, that they're okay, they're normal, and they're not. And Paul tells us to rid ourselves of those impurities and rid ourselves of greed, which is not just material, but greed and also in terms of these things that we've been thinking about sexually, but material also because greed says to God, you and your promises are not enough for me. I deserve more. I want more things or I want more of this or I deserve more pleasure or whatever. And so these things dwell in our heart and they take a place in culture and culture tells us that they're normal. Right. So we, we've talked about what that exploration of those things look like and how we're called to expunge those from our life. And then he says there's also things that come out of your mouth, not just that stir in your heart, but the things that come out of your mouth, the way that you speak and talk, obscenity, foolish talking, coarse joking. He talks about the way that the mouth of a believer should be giving life and not taking life. And we explored those things in depth, and we, we kind of look at those things together, and we said, this is what a life that imitates God looks like. It's got to rid itself of these things. And then Paul begins to kind of contrast the life of who we were before Christ and who we are now. He said, once last week, once you were darkness and now you are light. And Paul doesn't say once you lived in darkness or engaged in dark things. He says you actually were darkness. You were the embodiment of what it means to be alienated from God. That is the entire person apart from Christ. That the world is God, literally, most, most literally enemies with the Lord before Christ. Christ is the remedy. He is Savior and he is salvation. You were darkness. You, were, you are now light. So how do the Ephesians become light, right? Did they do anything? Did they quit being immoral or impure? Did they suddenly get this great pious heart? No, of course not. And we explored last week that they did nothing. They simply ran headlong into Jesus, put their faith in him, and Jesus exchanges their sinfulness for the righteousness of God, right? That God's grace is everything. That we deserve God's wrath, but through Christ we've been given this incredible freedom and beauty and grace. And so what Paul's going to do this morning, on top of all that, is he's going to explain a little deeper this contrast between light and dark. 
and why darkness is so deadly and poisonous, and why light is how we should embrace, what we should embrace and how we should define our lives. So we're going to be looking at that contrast a little deeper. But remember, we're doing it in the context of being an imitator of God, and with those things, specific things that Paul's been talking about in mind, that we've got to rid ourselves of sexual immorality and impurity, and of greed, and the coarse joking, and the obscenity, and the filthy talk, and those things that we've been exploring. Those are on the tip of Paul's tongue because it's in these same set of verses. It's taken us six weeks to get through it. Paul would have done it in 25 seconds. So um, that's where we are this morning. But let's look closely at what it means to be dark and what it means to be light and the contrast there within that Paul is calling us to. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to continue that thread this morning as we jump into verse 11. We're going to go all the way down through 14 uh, this morning as we look at this great contrast between who we were and who we are now, what is light and what is dark, and how that applies to how we live. So let's take a moment. Let me pray for us, and then we will we'll attempt to break these things down a little deeper this morning. Lord, what a privilege it is to gather in this place. What a joy it is to come together and open your word, Lord. We recognize that uh, an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. Lord, we recognize that your word is truth, that it is your very breath. In fact, the Greek word there is theopunestos, which means the breath of God. So the word you use for scripture is your very breath. And therefore, God, we take it seriously. We want it to not just be a simple guidebook for our life, but more of this love letter laid out by which we base our entire life upon. We don't alter your word to our lives. We alter our lives to your word because you are the rock. So, Lord, this morning as we struggle through these difficult verses continually, we run up against and headlong into truth, sometimes truth that we don't want to hear. I pray that you would soften our hearts, that we might be molded by you and not offended but challenge and encourage that the word of God gives life. Lord, this is your truth for us. Take a moment in your own heart this morning and just ask God to teach you. However simple that is or whatever you need to hear this morning, it wouldn't be any words from me, but just simply that the Lord would be teaching you. So Lord, just whisper, Lord, teach my heart. And take a moment and pray for someone beside you or behind you. Even if you don't know them, we do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. As we say every Sunday, everything that unfolds here on Sunday morning is not about you. Like Be in the habit of caring about the spiritual growth of others. Pray for them. Pray for your kiddos or your husband or your wife or just someone you've never met. Or if you're here for the first time, just give it a whirl. Pray for the person in front of you. Just ask that God would move in them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. You are the King of kings. This is your word. It is your truth. There is only one. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we're continuing in this uh, train of thought that Paul's having. It seems a little broken up because, of course, we've had to take seven weeks to kind of look at it 
but it's really one continuous train of thought in which Paul is leading us into this, deeper into this idea of what it means to be an imitator of God. Remember, that's where all this started. We're going to be an imitator of God. We have to rid our lives of certain things. We have to know that God exchanges our sin for his righteousness. We have to understand the difference between light and darkness, who we once were versus who we are now. And so he introduced us to that idea last week. You were once darkness, but now you are light. And this week what he's going to say is, this is what darkness is. And he's going to name it. And he's going to say, yet this is what light is. And he's going to name it. And he's going to give us two powerful lessons in there. So let's take a look at verse 11 together, and then we'll just kind of go through it piece by piece. This is verse 11 of chapter 5. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper. Rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. So last week he introduces us to this idea of light and dark. He basically says you were darkness, not you engaged in dark behavior or you made some some simple bad choices, but your entire life pre-Christ was darkness. You were alienated from God. You were literally his enemies. But now in Christ you are light, not you have light things or you do good things or you don't do bad behaviors, but your death has your life has been completely covered in Christ's death and you are something wholly new. You were darkness, you are now light. And so what he's going to do this morning is he's begin to break those two things down so that we understand as followers of Christ what exactly darkness is and what light is. Now, we've got to keep in mind, too, we're not talking, we're talking about darkness and light. We're not talking about general ideas of good and bad. While those certainly apply, we have to actually understand that Paul has been talking about some very specific, narrow things when it comes to darkness and light. Now, all of this kind of evil and things can get lumped in there, but he's actually talking specifically to those things we've mentioned, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, coarse joking, foolish talk, things in our heart, things that come out of our mouths. These are the angles in which he is defining darkness and light. So let's not forget that. We're not just talking about you were once dark and now you're light and so you don't do bad and now you do good. It's not that simple. It's actually much more pointed than that. And he's addressing specific struggling sins that the church was dealing with. And he names them. Because a lot of times we try and avoid sin in our life by not naming it. We kind of cover it with this kind of blanket of, God, I'm really sorry that I've done this or I thought that. or We kind of use these general terms. But, but Paul hones in on it and he says, I want you to name the things that are destroying your heart and the things that are coming out of your mouth that are destroying other people. And so he's addressing those things and he's going to contrast them with how they are affected by darkness and light. And this is what he says. Let's talk about darkness first. Let's get it out of the way. There's three real things here that we see about darkness. The first is that we have to understand that darkness is disobedience. So if you look at verse 12, he says this, For it is shameful to mention even what the disobedient do in secret. So we know that darkness is tied to disobedience. And disobedience is actually sin. Now this is really important to understand. Because if the, those that are engaged in the dark behaviors are engaging in disobedience, then they are living in direct, contrary kind of lifestyle to what God calls us to do. Disobedience is the antithesis of the gospel. 
The gospel's call is to come and die to self. It's to literally put my own life down and say, God, not what I desire, but wholly and fully what you desire. Right? We see this picture laid out perfectly in Christ, and especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when Jesus is sitting on that rock and he's, he's praying, begging for the disciples to pray with him or those that were with him. He's sweating blood. He knows what's to come. He literally can see this angry mob with torches and swords coming to arrest him. And he knows where he is headed is to an instrument of Roman mockery and humiliation and torture and death. And what does he say to God? He says, Father, right? If you could or you will, please take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will be done. In other words, in all of my humanness, I cry out to you and say, I would rather not do what is coming. Right? Because not only was it that physical death, but Christ knows too that the weight of the sin of the world will be cast upon him. But in the same breath, he says, however, whatever your will is, Father, in all of his divinity, he says, I choose you. I choose obedience. Obedience is the path of the believer. Disobedience is the path of darkness. So if God calls us to rid our lives of sexual immorality, of impurity, of lust, of greed, of obscenity, of all those things that we've talked about, and we engage them, we entertain them, we live with them. We are living in active disobedience, and disobedience is sin. It's not just something that we struggle with. It's not a little tension here or there. Disobedience is direct sin, and we are living in darkness. Now, most of us don't like to think about sin like that. We like to think about sin as something that we struggle with over here, but yet we're still fully surrendered to the Lord. You cannot be engaged in disobedience and be fully surrendered to Christ. We are either actively warring to get the disobedience out of our life, or we're actively trying to hide it from the Lord. That's how our lives work. But darkness is disobedience, which means that this morning, if you are wrestling with these things, Right? Don't be discouraged, but don't let them continue to be part of your story. The beauty of these passages is that they are encouraging because there is a remedy for our sin, but we have to be active in saying, God, I want it out. So if somehow in your life these things have creeped their way in, impurity and immorality or greed or just the language that you use or the, the words that you use that are stealing life and rather than taking it, they've whittled their way into your heart. You have to war against it because living with them on any level is active disobedience. Which means if you're saying, well, it's only once in a while. It's really not that big a deal. I haven't really acted upon it. It's just a thought. The reality is, it is a big deal. It's huge because it's disobedience and we're called to rid ourselves of it. So let's not dance around it, right? So Paul says, essentially, darkness is disobedience. He also says this. The second thing he says about darkness is that the deeds of darkness are fruitless, right? Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, they are fully and totally empty. They produce nothing of value. What value has ever come out of an affair, if you will? What value has ever come out of breaking God's moral law? What life has ever come out of impurity and lust and greed? What value has ever come out of the language that you use that destroys someone else? 
The deeds of darkness are totally hollow and void. It's why when you engage in a behavior that's sinful like that, do you feel fulfilled? At its completion or whenever that transpires or whatever happens, do you look back and you go, man, that was that was great idea. Like, I love the way that made I feel good. No, we're empty and broken because it doesn't satisfy. And so we pursue it at a different angle, or we try it again, thinking something will change. But it's always the same result, because the deeds of darkness are fruitless. And you think about the idea of producing fruit, right? Producing fruit is something of value. It produces sustenance. It gives to you and someone else. It's something that's visible. You plant a peach tree in your yard, and that peach tree produces fruit, and you think, this is fantastic. That tree has value. And it nourishes and it gives life. My family and I can eat it. We can partake it. We can share it. But the fruit of darkness is empty. It's fruitless. Just a tree produces nothing. If you remember last week, Paul actually contrasts this by telling us that there is actually fruit that light produces. This is what he says in verse 8. He says that the light, right, essentially the light that we have, we were once in darkness, we are now the fruit of the light in verse 9 consists of these things, goodness, righteousness, and truth. So verse 9 says, light produces fruit. This is weird mixed metaphors that Paul's using, but that's fine. He says, light produces fruit, goodness and righteousness and truth. What does darkness produce? Fruitless. So when we engage in light, in the light, in Christ, we produce goodness and righteousness and truth. And what I mentioned last week was, you know what's incredible about those three things? Is they're not behaviors, They're actually characteristics of who God is. God is good. God is righteous. And God is truth, right? And I explained all the verses that show that. So what he basically says that when you engage in the light, the reason you can become an imitator of God is not because you're doing good behavior now, but because God himself through Christ has embedded his character in you, and you are who he is. You are not a reflection of God. You are the embodiment of God's character dwelling in you through the Holy Spirit. You are good and righteous and true because of Christ, not because of your behavior. Your behavior will never get you to goodness and righteousness and truth. You will fail over and over again. However, that in Christ, he literally dwells in us through his Holy Spirit, and we become the embodiment of goodness and truth and righteousness, not because our behavior is perfect, because the God that dwells in us is. The fruit of light Goodness and truth and righteousness, the fruit of the deeds of darkness, empty. You know that if you've ever engaged in the sinful behavior, sinful mentality, the action it never, ever fulfills. Darkness is empty. It's fruitless, right? So we know that darkness is disobedience. We know that darkness is fruitless. Listen to the last thing he says about darkness. Back to verse 12. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them, verse 12. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. You know, darkness deals in shame and secrets. Think about it. Darkness deals in a place that wants us to hide things. Sin is the purveyor of shame and guilt. It is the dealer in those things. It wants us to engage in things that begin to tear and destroy our heart. Why? Because that's how the enemy loves to work. The enemy doesn't really work in the consequence of behavior. He works in the shame and the guilt and the destruction of the heart. 
For it is shameful, Paul says, to even mention, to even talk about the deeds of darkness, right, that the disobedient do. In other words, it's shameful to even talk about it. Imagine the shame and guilt that riddle the life of those that are engaged in it. Darkness deals in shame and secrets. They do them in secret, right? When I, back in the day when I was doing youth ministry for years, I used to tell my youth kids, and I've even told my own kids this, nothing good happens after midnight, Right? Now, here's the thing. As a teenager, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, whatever. And you're probably searching your mind going, oh, yeah, you know, I've been to, there's some good. There, you know what I mean. There are literally most of the poor decisions that you've made as a young person and probably even worse as an adult have happened in the darkness. They've happened when there is no light, right? Both metaphorically and literally. Like in a place where there are no eyes, where there are no other people, where things are not exposed, and the shadows and the, and the recesses of our hearts and in the corners of alleys and places and things, places we shouldn't be and things that we shouldn't be doing. I mean, when I was a kid, that's what we tried to do. We tried to go out after midnight. We'd sneak out of people's houses to do terribly, horribly, awful, stupid things. Nothing we did, I look back on, was a great idea. Not once did we sneak out at midnight and go down to the orphanage and just work with the homeless kids, man. Never went to a soup kitchen. No, we made fake dummies out of uh, sweatpants and pantyhose and threw them off bridges in front of cars. That's horrible. I should be in jail for that. We did terrible, terrible, terrible things. Why? Because it was our nature. We were living fully in darkness. And darkness deals in shame and secrets. It deals in darkness. Most of the things that you're doing when you're engaging in these things, right, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, they're done in the deep corners and recesses of our heart and minds that we don't want anyone to know about. They're done in shame and secrets. In fact, most of you that have some of these things in your life right now, embarrassed by them. You know that they're wrong. You feel terrible, and you know that you want to keep them a secret because that's where darkness lives. It lives in that place. We're going to talk about the exposure of light and why it's a great thing here in just a moment, but I want to leave that there because I think it's important. It's important to understand that when you feel shame and guilt, that's not from the Lord. That's purely from the enemy. Shame and guilt, they are the tools and the weapons of an enemy that will tell you you are no good. And the truth is, apart from Christ, you aren't. However, there's a totally different part to the story. So here's what we know about darkness, right? Darkness is disobedience and disobedience is sin. The deeds of darkness most literally are fruitless and darkness deals in shame and guilt. So what's the big lesson here, right? Paul says it right there in verse 11. Have nothing to do with darkness. So the big lesson about darkness is have nothing to do with it. Same thing as the idea of there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Have nothing to do with darkness. Darkness is not a place that we vacation to. It is not a place that we should visit. It's not something we toy around with. We shouldn't play with sin. It's not something that we just do and God looks upon and says, oh, you were only in your early 20s or you were a teenager. Darkness leads to death. Have nothing to do with it. So if you have these things in your life at all, the role of the believer is begin to war against them and rid your life of them fully. Have nothing to do with it. 
The problem is we want to entertain a little bit of darkness because we feel comfortable there. We feel safe. We've done that thing or this stuff or we've used this language or whatever it is for so much of our life that it's kind of a part of who we are. And we're afraid of life without it. As absolute crazy as that sounds, it's just part of who we have become. But to have nothing to do with darkness is to say, I won't even entertain it. It's not allowed in my home. It's not allowed in my heart or my mind. So whatever I need to do to rid myself of those things, those words, those ideas, I am going to fully do it. Because to not do it is fully disobedient. If Christ says, have nothing to do with darkness, and we play with it, we are living in disobedience. If Christ says, have nothing to do with darkness, and we allow it into our hearts and our homes, we are living in disobedience, and disobedience is sin. So the lesson, have nothing to do with darkness. Rid your life of it, period. By contrast, look at what he says about light, right? Light's a wholly different story, of course. Saw that one coming. Look in verse 13. But everything is exposed by the light, and it becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine upon you. So what do we learn about light? Well, the first thing we learn, obviously, is that light exposes. It exposes everything. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, right? So light, in contrast, exposes the darkness, everything in it, right? If you've ever shined a light in the middle of the night, right, you know what Paul is referencing here. If you've ever been on a country road and you turned your headlights off for a moment, pitch black, and you turn them on, and you realize how much the light exposes. Like when the light falls upon the darkness, it exposes everything. This is a metaphor that Jesus himself actually talks a lot about, and he calls himself the light and essentially the exposer of all darkness. He does it in John 3.20, and this is what he says. Listen to what Jesus says about himself. He says, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. So if you do evil and you engage in darkness, you hate the light. You hate the light because you are in fear of being exposed. Think about it. If you are engaging in darkness, sinful behavior, those things that we just talked about, what's your biggest fear? Is your biggest fear the consequence, really, or is your biggest fear being found out, being exposed? I think for most of us, if we're truly honest, our biggest fear is not the consequence. Our biggest fear is exposure. We don't want the people around us to know. I don't want them to know what I struggle with, what I wrestle with, what I've done. Even for the believer, which I'll tell you why is sad in a moment, but for the believer, it's true also. And you know how I know this is true? Is that if I stood you up here on this stage and I flashed a pictures, a slideshow of everything that you've done and every thought that you've had, all the things that you thought you could have done, should have done, or would have done, all the things that you did, all those things that transpired, the things that you've thought about people, about God, the things that you've engaged in, the things that you've let your mind see. And I flashed all those pictures. The fear of exposure and what the world would now know or my friends would now know or what people would now know is petrifying. We're usually not afraid of the consequences of sin. We're afraid of the exposure. It's why Jesus says those who are living in darkness are petrified of the light. Why? Because the light exposes. They don't want to be found out. 
The biggest fear you have right now, and I'll be really honest, if you're living in one of these categories, is just being found out. It's the world knowing. It's people around you knowing. But here's the thing, and this is the amazing thing for the believer, is that for the believer, exposure shouldn't be a fear. It's not a fear. For believer, the believer, exposure to the light is the absolute answer. It's not a place of fear, like we're going to be condemned. We already stand condemned because of our sin. The light, Christ, is the remedy. Exposure is the remedy to darkness. That means that when we are found out by Christ, which of course is at every moment of every day, and we surrender our lives to him, that exposure is freeing and cleansing and remedies us from that sin and darkness. Exposure for the believer is freedom. That's what confession is. Confession is coming before the Lord saying, God, I have blown it, and I have blown it in these specific ways, and I have failed you, and I need your grace. And you know what Scripture tells us? We've looked at it over this past few weeks. Scripture tells us that God is just, and he will forgive us. And we confess our sin, he hears us and frees us. Exposure is freedom. When you go before the Lord and you lay your heart out and you say, God, I have blown it, I'm not going to hide in the corners and the recesses of these dark places. I'm not going to hide in the shadows. I'm not going to let darkness become my story. I'm going to confess where I failed you, and I'm going to ask your light to shine upon my life because you cleanse, you heal, you free. For the believer, exposure is healing, it's cleansing, it's freedom, it's the remedy. And that's why Christ says those that live in darkness are afraid of the light because they're afraid of exposure. But those that know Christ, even though they've engaged in sin, they're not afraid of exposure because they know in exposure comes forgiveness. And they know with forgiveness comes healing, and in healing comes life. The piece this morning that you need to hear is if these behaviors are a part of your life or these actions or these things are a part of your life, there is absolute and full hope in Christ. Exposure is the hope. Confess them. Go before the Lord. Tell him. Find someone you trust. Tell them, ask them to hold you accountable, ask them to walk with you, ask them to fight with you. Be exposed. Exposure in the body of Christ is a beautiful thing. The light exposes. It's great. It's hard, but it's great. The light also awakens. Listen to what what Paul says in that last little sentence here. He says this, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That little section there in your te- is set off by italics or kind of offset in your text is most likely, uh, we don't know exactly, but most likely it's a, a hymn that was used in the early church. It's not referencing to any one particular scripture. It's actually referencing a lot of different scriptures. But we know that, that there were often these things that Paul used. There's some in Philippians uh, 2, 5 through 11, for example, that he uses that are part of the, that are hymns or part of the worship story of the church the New Testament church. And this most likely was that. So what that means is this most likely was the verse of a hymn that was used in worship that everyone in the Ephesian church would know. And Paul says, so this is why it's said, or this is why we sing, or this is why we proclaim, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and let Christ shine upon you. That first section, though, right? Wake up, O sleeper. This is a metaphor that Scripture loves. I mean, all through the Old Testament and New Testament, Scripture loves the idea of God waking the slumbering soul to life, right? Loves that picture. My favorite picture of that is is in Romans chapter 13. And he says this in uh, verse, I guess it would say, let's see, 
let's go Romans 11, 13, 11. He says this, and you do this. And understand this at the present time. The hour has come to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Scripture is full of this idea of slumbering, coming to life in Christ. Because if you think about it, right, the metaphor is really powerful. When you're sleeping, you're not cognizant, you're not awake you're not engaging with the world. You're in this holy other state, completely ignorant of everything that's going on around you in the world. You are helpless, right? And you are just drawing breath. But when the sun dawns, right, when the light comes, when you wake up from your sleep, what happens? You become fully alive. You begin to engage with the world. You begin to see things. Your eyes open. You begin to see the world around you. The light shines on the things. You know what the day holds. You begin to draw breath with purpose. I need to, to rake, my, make, rake, uh, rake my kids. I need to get them out and rake them up. I need to wake my kids. I need to make breakfast. I need to do things. I need to go to work. I need to engage in life. I need to become fully aware and cognizant of what waking up does. And this metaphor that Scripture uses about sleeping and waking is really about the world apart from Christ and the world in Christ. That the world apart from Christ is essentially asleep. They're barely existing. No full life. They don't understand a big picture. They don't have the concept of eternity. They don't know what full, abundant, true life looks like. They only know what is right there with them in those moments. They're lost. They're drifting. They're wandering. But Scripture tells us that there's this whole other thing that transpires in Christ. It's an awakening, an awakening of the soul, the way we were meant to live, meaning there's more to this life than just drawing breath and going to work and coming home from work and trying not to fight with our spouse and trying to make enough money to put enough away so that we don't die broke. That somehow life is worth something so much more. That this breath that we draw has purpose and meaning. That God has given us direction and calling. That we have value and that we can give value to others. And that we have this key to eternal life that we're called to tell the world. And this thing called joy is influxed into that. And that there's reason to wake up in the morning. And there's joy to be found in every conversation. And there's life to be given in every single moment engaging in life and people. That in Christ, this life becomes abundantly full. John 10.10, 10, right? Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I have come so that you might have life and have it to the full. Jesus didn't come just so that you wouldn't go to hell when you die. That's a huge part of it. But he came so that you might have abundant life because eternal life begins today. Not when we draw our last breath. It begins in this very moment. What that means is that the light, when we encounter Christ, it awakens the soul. He awakens your soul. If you're walking around in mediocrity, if you're walking around feeling like life is just one thing going to another thing going to another thing and there's no joy and purpose and hope, you're walking around as though you were asleep. You're living life like an unbeliever or a non-believer. And what Paul says is that wake up. You have Christ in you. You are fully alive in him. This world is magnificently amazing, not because of all the sin, but because God has given you purpose he has given you reason. He has given you reason to live and love and dance and draw breath. Wake up from your slumber. 
Sadly, our churches are filled with slumbering believers that should be fully alive, but are choosing to engage in a life that is asleep. The light awakens, right? The second part of that little hymn there says this, rise from the dead. Probably the great, greatest picture of light is this idea of life. They're connected together. We, back in the day when we went through the book of John, you remember we went through the whole thing, we talked a lot about light and life. And Jesus equates himself both, to both things. He actually calls himself both things, that he is the, the light of the world, right, and that he is life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14. He also says in John 8, 12, that I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me or follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, light gives life because the light is Jesus. That's the great thing about light, is that it's actually the embodiment of the person of Jesus Christ. Light gives life. Not because light is some metaphor for goodness or good deeds. Light is the metaphor for Christ. It is the nature of who he is. He says in John 8, I am the light of the world. The entire world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. If you follow me, you will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. Not you will, your path will be illuminated. You will most literally have in you the light of life, which is unbelievable for the believer, right? Light gives life because the light is Jesus. And that light is for the whole world. The entire world needs it, and the entire world has to have it. There is no other third option. There is darkness, and there is light. There is no third thing. The world would love to tell you that there's a third thing out there, that we all get somewhere on whatever path we're on. It's a lie. There's darkness, and there's light. Jesus is light. So here's what we learn about light, right? So... Light in itself, right, exposes everything. Jesus is the light. He illuminates. Darkness hates it because it doesn't want to be exposed. But, but exposure is great. It's beautiful for the believer. It's not something to be afraid of. There's no condemnation for those in Christ. Light awakens the soul. It rises us from our slumber. And light gives life because light is Jesus. So what's the lesson? Listen to that last little verse. And Christ will shine on you. So if the lesson of darkness is have nothing to do with darkness, then the lesson of light is have everything to do with the light. Right? Have nothing to do with darkness. Have everything to do with the light. What that means is that it should be your life's ambition to have everything that you do and say about Jesus. Your life's ambition should be, I want everything I do to be exposed. I want no hidden things in my life. I want God to know, which he already does, of course, which is the great irony of ironies. He knows, and I try and hide it from him, but he sees everything. I want him to know. I want my life to be exposed in the goodness and light of Christ. I want every breath and every moment to be in a radical pursuit of Jesus. I want the words that come out of my mouth to give life to other people. I want to speak in ways that honor and bring glory to God. I want to live in a way, right? Live in a way 
that rids my heart of darkness and its fruitless deeds, but instead engages who I am in Christ, goodness and righteousness and truth. I want to have everything to do with the light. This becomes the easy and beautiful contrast of what it means to follow Jesus. Have nothing to do with darkness. Darkness is disobedience. The deeds of darkness are fruitless, right? Darkness deals in shame and guilt. Have everything to do with light. Light exposes, and that is a beautiful thing. Light awakens the soul, and light gives life. Here's the encouragement for this morning. Wherever you find your life, if you've got these darkness pieces that have woven your way into your heart, there's hope, always hope. That's the beauty of knowing Jesus. When the light exposes, that is the remedy for our sinfulness. So confess it. Tell the Lord you've blown it. War to rid your life of it and experience his saving grace. Not because you fixed it, but because God fully frees you and redeems you in Christ. There is life in the light. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the beauty of gathering here this morning and looking at that great contrast. The world will tell you there is no such thing as darkness. Or that darkness is only inhabited by a few people at a few places, like terrible people like Hitler and all these other folks. But the truth is that anything apart from the light is darkness. Darkness is disobedience. It's anything that you tell us not to do that we do. And a lot of us, actually I'll just say it this way, every single one of us is living in it. Myself fully included. We try and pretend we're not, but we are. You tell us to do things and we do the opposite. You tell us to rid our lives of things and we let them hang around. You tell us to purge our lives of life that steals and our words that steal and we use them anyway. You tell us to purge our lives of immorality and purity and greed and yet we hang on to them as if they're some kind of comfort blanket. We're disobedient. A lot of us, myself included, we're afraid of being exposed. The world knowing our lack of faith or our unbelief or the deeds that we've done or the things that we've thought. And the truth is, Lord, you already know them all. There's nothing you don't know. You know every breath that we breathe, every hair on our head. You know every thought that we had before we had it. So exposure to you is the ultimate in safety. I get to come before the Lord and confess my sin and I get to be set free. The light exposes and it awakens the soul and it gives life because you are the light. You are the light of the world. This place is dark. It's dark and it's broken and it's full of hate and bigotry. It's full of death and yet there is hope in you and we as children of the light that have this dwelling in us, this person of Christ dwelling in us, the righteousness and goodness and truth, like we are wholly different and called to be. Not because our behavior is different or because we have some kind of special skill set, but because you've made us different in Christ. And so, Lord, let us live in the light. Let us be the light in the world. Have nothing to do with darkness and have everything to do with light. Let's close our time this morning in worship and stand together.
Come and rise up from the grave. Christ is risen from the dead, and we are one with him again. Come awake, come awake, come and rise up from the grave. Amen. Let's give the Lord a hand this morning. So the the truth and the takeaway this morning is, is really pretty simple, right? Have nothing to do with darkness. Have everything to do with the light. Go in peace.